I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, as together we continue on in the Word of God in the book of 1 Kings. We've just seen Elijah's great contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, a contest that uh, the Lord won decisively. The contest, of course, was to see which God would answer with fire, two bulls, two altars, two stacks of wood, but only the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, could hear and answer the prayers of his people. And so when Elijah prayed, he answered with fire, fire that consumed not just the bull and the wood, but also the altar itself and licked up even the very dust around the altar. He answered decisively, and the people have cried out, the Lord, he is God. And then Elijah instructed the people, of course, to go and to take the prophets of Baal, these, uh, according to the word of God, which had said that when they come into the, the promised land that he was giving them, that they should not serve false gods or listen to those who were proclaiming false gods. So they took them, and they executed them at the brook Shon. Now uh, we're going to take up the story and see what happened next after that. But before we uh, hear about Elijah's next prayer... We need to pray ourselves and ask for his help. Let's go into the presence of the living God. God, our Father, whenever we come to your word, Lord, we are entered into another battle, not uh, entirely unlike the one that occurred on Mount Carmel. We know, O Lord, that our great spiritual enemies once again want to defy you. And they want us to defy you. They want us to not listen to your word, to not believe it. They want our thoughts to stray to and fro, and to uh, think about anything other than that which is before us. I pray, Lord, that you would once again defeat them, that you would cause us to pay attention to your word and to grow. You want to speak to us, I know, today about prayer. And I pray, O Lord, uh, that you would help me to unfold this word to your people. I'm a man with feet of clay, a sinner myself, And I know, Lord, that I will never be able to reach hearts. I may be able to reach ears, but not hearts. Only you can do that, Lord. So I pray that you would help us now to understand these words and apply them to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to be reading verses 41 through to the end of the chapter. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand for. For years at this point, it hadn't rained. It hadn't rained for three years. Now, you and I know when it's going to rain to a certain extent. 
uh, and that immediately before. Uh, or perhaps in the morning we, we wake up, and those of you who are blessed to have your own barometer built into your body, um, you, uh, like me, will wake up and be like, oh, it's going to rain today. You know it in your bones, unfortunately. Um, but here, it, it's usually the case that we, we feel the wind and we see the clouds rolling in. But on this day, I am sure that nobody woke up with that aching in their bones, thinking it's going to rain today. It hadn't rained for years. Why would it rain this day? And there was a clear blue sky when that conflict with the prophets of Baal had taken place. And yet we read that by faith, Elijah heard the sound of an abundance of rain. What's going on there? Well, God was revealing his will to him. But there's something that has to happen first. The Lord is not just going to do this thing. It is his desire. But first, Elijah must pray. Elijah must represent the people of God. The majority of the inhabitants of the northern kingdom, you remember, had turned aside from worshiping God. They hadn't worshipped him the way that he had instructed them. They weren't going to the temple in Jerusalem on the regular cycle of feasts and sacrifices. And many of them had given in to uh, the worship of Ahab and Jezebel's Baal, uh, the Baal of the Sidonians that uh, this daughter, this princess of Sidon, Jezebel, had imported into the northern kingdom and it had grown in popularity. Baal, of course, was a god of rain, but uh, the rain had stopped to show that Baal had no power at all. And now the Lord has once again shown that he is all-powerful everywhere, and it is raining in Israel again. Now, wicked King Ahab, who had assembled the people of Israel, and, uh, and that included, of course, the defeated and now deceased prophets of Baal, was still standing there. And I imagine he was, uh, he was still amazed and wondering, what on earth am I going to do now? Uh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who had taken his people out of Egypt, delivered them from bondage there and brought them into the promised land. He had once again shown that he was the only true God. And now what is this wicked king going to do? Well, sadly, he did not fall on his face and repent at that point in time. Uh, I think most of us would have expected that Elijah would have told the people to seize the king as well and put him to death. As a matter of fact, whenever I get to that point where it says seize the prophets of Baal, I'm always, I'm always surprised that he isn't included. But it was not God's will that that would happen. This man, although he uh, descended from an evil line, was yet the leader of the people. And Elijah honors him. The, the prophet respects the king and tells him to go and eat and drink. Why? Well, uh, he'd probably been fasting all day, that's true. He's probably hungry at this point in time. But as the king eats, it's also a sign that the famine is over. The Lord is once again giving them a sign. And the uh, representative of the people there, the king, can once again eat because the Lord is opening up heaven and pouring his blessings, his common grace down upon this people. Elijah, meanwhile, knows what he has to do. He has to pray again. So Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel. You remember that the, I had mentioned earlier that the area where the, the battle with the, uh, the, the prophets uh, that occurred, the two altars, was lower down on the mountain. Now he ascends the mountain. He goes up to the place where you would have been able to see the Mediterranean. And what does he do? He puts himself in a position of abject prostration. He puts his face between his knees in the most humble posture possible and begins to 
begged the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel that he would be merciful to them, him, that he would, he would send rain that they needed so badly. And the Lord, who had answered before with fire, proving that he alone was God and that Elijah was his prophet and did speak to him, the Lord determines he will be merciful to an undeserving people. That's something I, I think we forget. It's something that's very important when we come before the Lord, that we come, so, we come humbly. It's, it's a good thing to come rejoicing before the Lord, particularly when he has blessed us. We can uh, speak to him familially and so on, but there needs to be that respect. There needs to be that awe. There needs to be that remembrance also that we are a people who do not deserve the things that we are asking for. They are given to us as gifts. This is the Lord's mercy that he is bestowing upon his people. And so he was going to bestow mercy upon them again. Elijah goes and asks that he would give them rain. And he takes his servant with him. And while he prays, he tells his servant to go and look. He has his face down to the ground beneath, uh, between his knees. So he is not going to be looking to the skies. Instead, he sends his servant out. Go and look for signs of rain. And this time, you remember before when uh, he had asked the Lord to answer with fire, the answer was immediate and overwhelming. Sometimes that's the way the Lord answers prayer. He answers your prayers very quickly, very definitely, with no possibility of you misunderstanding his intentions. It's something that happens immediately. But oftentimes it's the case that we have to be what uh, that good old word importunate in our prayer, like the importunate widow constantly going to him, learning by that, how dependent we are upon him. And it's something that he does often, he doesn't answer immediately. We have to be constant in our prayer. Seven times the servant goes and looks. Incidentally, uh, one of the things that you should always pay attention to is numbers that are obviously numbers of import. Revelation is filled with numbers, uh, for instance, that go back to prophecies in the Old Testament. But seven is the number of completeness, the number of fullness in the Bible. So Elijah has offered up a full prayer to the Lord, and now the Lord will answer the servant this time looks, and it's only at this point that he begins to see a tiny cloud forming out on the Mediterranean and moving towards the land. And again, we might have been there and said, a tiny cloud? That's it? Elijah prays seven times. He goes back and forth between Elijah and, and looking out over the Mediterranean, and there's just this tiny cloud. And yet... What does Elijah say? He understands immediately the sign that the Lord is giving them. And he says, go to Ahab, tell him, get in your chariot and go before the floodwaters stop you. It's going to be a raging torrent out there. You better hurry or you're not going to be able to make it back to Jezreel. And sure enough, at that word, the tiny cloud goes from being that thing the size of a man's fist into the beginnings of this giant storm system, this massive storm system. Now, this is done so that the people will understand this is the Lord's doing. It's not just a wonderful coincidence that Elijah had his little home meteorology kit and he had figured out that this particular day it was going to pray at this particular time or anything like that. No, it was the Lord's answer. And he makes it clear by taking the day from clear blue skies to massive T-cell thunderstorms in, in one uh, or two minutes, one would imagine. Elijah, filled then with the Spirit of the Lord, sprints ahead of Ahab's chariot, 
and he reaches Jezreel first, even as the torrents of rain are falling. That would have required a lot of faith as well, because, of course, Jezebel is at Jezreel at this point in time, and she hates him with a passionate hatred as she hates the Lord and hates his prophets and hates everything to do with the God of Israel. She would have killed him had she known he was outside the gates. Now, James, in the New Testament, the head of uh, the church in Jerusalem, the writer of the book, he takes this story and he uses it to encourage the Jewish Christians living in the diaspora to do what? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm going to stand here and wait until somebody finally says it. We can go all day if you wish. Pray, thank you. That was easy. So (laughs) he asks them to pray and he uses this example. Sometimes we think that uh, we need to be... uh, possessing a superhuman righteousness in order to come into the presence of the living God and and be heard. Or we need to be, uh, you know, theologically trained or that there needs to be something about us that's otherworldly. We need to float a few inches above the ground. Uh, That's not the case. The Lord tells his people, great and small, to pray. It's something that we're called upon to do. James stresses this point, and the James who stressed this point, they, uh, I, they used to call him something along the line of camel knees because his knees had become so rough because he spent so much time kneeling in prayer. In James 5.17, we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He stresses that point, the power of prayer in the mouth of a believer and in the heart of a believer is an amazing thing. Now, if I were to ask you, and let me go ahead and do that, let me ask you, is prayer important? Yes, Yes, you would say prayer is important. If I were to ask you, do you believe God answers prayer, you would say yes. And yet, Here's the question, is that reflected in our practice? We say that's what we believe, but do we show that we believe it in what we do? Let me give you some examples of, of what, I was, uh, what I'm talking about here. A few years ago, we were visited by a, um, a young man, a soldier, uh, very full of zeal. He described himself uh, to me as a charismatic Calvinist. And I, when I heard that description, my immediate response when I was talking to him was, so this is not the kind of worship service you're used to. And he said to me essentially, no, 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 nothing like this. So uh, I said, well, tell me what the differences were. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly curious. And he said, after we had gotten past the big one, he, the first thing that he said to me, and I've learned not to take offense to things like this, he said, well, you guys don't worship. I was like, okay, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, you know, in order to have a worship service, you have to have 20 minutes of P&W at the beginning, which is praise and worship. You have the worship band, the worship leader. Everybody jumps up and down and, and, and sings and, and does that. We didn't do that. He mentioned uh, also after that, the next thing he got to is he said he had never been in a church that prayed for as long as we do in a worship service. And he said to me, he was quite honest, he said, I got to tell you, my mind started drifting completely away after the the first few minutes and then by minute 10 I wasn't paying any attention at all and uh, when he said that I was curious I said how long do you think the prayer went on for and he said oh I don't know 20 minutes maybe Uh, whatever it was Christians my age don't pray for nearly that long and uh, later I, I because I'm this kind of person I went back and I checked the actual time of the prayer seven minutes four seconds 
which to him was 20 minutes of prayer or more. Um, and uh, I then did some more checking, and I found out that seven minutes is about the average, and that we seldom go above 10 minutes. Now, he's right in one sense, all right? Prayer uh, has gone from being the second largest part of a Christian worship service to something that in a lot of worship services is excised entirely. It used to be that in the churches that came out of the Protestant Reformation, the only thing that got more time in a worship service was the sermon. Prayer was considered to be absolutely needful. It was not uncommon, for instance, in Puritan congregations, Baptist congregations in the United States as they were formed, and other uh, Reformed congregations, and even Methodist congregations and so on, for prayers to go on for half an hour, 45 minutes, or even up to an hour in their prayers during the worship service. And it went from, from being something that went on from that long to something that's actually been dropped because, and this is a quote, it's boring, okay? It bores people, and it makes people who aren't used to prayer uncomfortable. They don't know what to do in those moments when, when everybody else is praying. Nowadays, if there are prayers, they tend to be short, they tend to be highly emotional, and they tend to be accompanied by music. That was something that, uh, that's always amazed me. Why do you need music for a prayer? You know, it's not, not something that helps the prayer to be decent and in order, but it's something that helps the people to, to be entertained, uh, even if the prayer is entertaining. Then there is that, speaking of, of our actions, showing what we really believe, there is that most impossible to populate church event what do you think is the most impossible to populate church event? The prayer meeting, the midweek prayer meeting. Um, again and again, uh, within our own congregation, we would start them, and it didn't matter when we did it, what day, what time, and so on. Uh, eventually, it would start out, hopefully, we would have a lot of people who would come, we would pray together, but eventually it always dwindled down to the officers and their families. It was just the elders and the deacons getting together with their families to pray. And I was hoping that was just us, but other pastors have told me they also have serious difficulty getting the people to come out for a meeting that's just for prayer. People will come out if there's teaching involved, if there's something else, uh, but we want to see and do stuff. The idea of coming to the church just to pray has become very alien to Christians. And how different that is from the practice of the churches that, as I said, came out of the Reformation. How they prayed. It was, as I said, common for them to pray for an hour in the midst of worship. The directory for public worship that was drawn up uh, in England in the 17th century stated this about the way the minister is supposed to pray, the pulpit prayer. And keep in mind, I'm not going to give you all the particulars that they tell you that the minister should pray for. They say, the minister is to give thanks for the great love of God in sending his son Jesus Christ unto us, for the communication of his Holy Spirit, for the light and liberty of the glorious gospel, and the rich and heavenly blessings revealed therein as namely election, vocation, adoption, justification, sanctification, and hope of glory for the admirable goodness of God in freeing the land from anti-Christian darkness and tyranny and for all other national deliverances, for the reformation of religion, for the covenant, and for many temporal blessings, to pray for the continuance of the gospel and all ordinances thereof in their 
purity, power, and liberty to turn the chief and most useful heads of the sermon into some few petitions and to pray that it may abide in the heart and bring fruit, to pray for preparation for death and judgment and a watching for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, to entreat of God the forgiveness of the iniquities of our holy things and the acceptance of our spiritual sacrifice through the merit and mediation of our great high priest and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, just to read the heads there takes about as much time as, as we might devote to prayer. I can't, I, I, I was thinking about it and going over it in my head. I couldn't even begin to get through those things in less than 35 minutes. Not a chance. And even then, I would be barely skipping the stone over the, uh, the pond in, in some senses. And that was the way they prayed on a regular basis. Now, some people might say, well, that's just the excessive zeal of the Puritans showing itself, but that's not the Bible. But then if we look at the Bible, what do we see in the practice of the New Testament church? What do we see? After Jesus ascended into heaven, what did the church do? Do you know? They came together and prayed, Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The church is praying. They're all together in one accord before Pentecost. Pentecost happens, and what did the church devote itself to after Pentecost? Prayer. Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. When Peter is arrested, the, the chief of the disciples, the spokesman of the apostles, what does the church do? They hire lawyers, right? No. What do they do? They pray. Acts 12.5, Peter was therefore kept in prison by constant prayer. Constant, note that. Prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And you remember, he actually shows up at the prayer meeting that's praying for him. How's that for God answering with fire immediately? You know, suddenly, there he is. He's been delivered. We don't believe it. He's a ghost. Rhoda won't even open the door. That's the servant girl, not the, the, the charming young lady who goes to our congregation here. But uh, won't open the, uh, the door, forgets, because she's so amazed by it. Are we, are we a people who are sometimes amazed that the Lord answers our prayer? Wait a minute, that happened? This is like supernatural or something. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the point. Before Paul and Barnabas are sent on their first missionary journey, what does the church do? Praise, again, now you're getting it. Acts 13, 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, how often did Paul instruct the Thessalonian congregation to pray? Without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5, 17. The church should never be without prayer. Now, this does not mean that you should try to pray 24 by 7, but it means that every day, on a regular basis, the people of God shall be going to the Lord in prayer. And those prayers should be lifted up constantly. What did Paul want the believers to do for him when he was in prison? Pray! Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Again and again, I could give you examples of prayer, prayer, prayer. Prayer particularly preceding the great 
moves of redemption that the Lord makes in the book of Acts. So, for instance, when the gospel goes out to Samaria for the first time, Peter is on a rooftop praying. That's where it starts. And meanwhile, there's a centurion in Samaria who's also praying. All of these things are preceded by prayer. The Lord wants us to pray. So how are we to pray? Well, question 185 in the larger catechism says this. How are we to pray? We are to pray, it says, with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God, deep sense of our unworthiness, necessities and sins, with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. I think that's a wonderful summary of the way that we're supposed to be advancing into the throne room, going before God humbly, depending upon him, waiting upon him. Uh, The most basic question, of course, is what is prayer? The Shorter Catechism does a great job with that. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. And this is important. Let me stop here for a second. Should we be praying for things that go against God's will as he declares it in the word? Absolutely not, yes. We pray in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Note this, if we're going to pray, it must be in faith and in the name of Christ. Christ instructed us and his apostles to pray in John 16, 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Christ is, uh, you know, that... Sometimes you'll pass church signs and there's, a, <laughs> there's something, you know, to think about. And then sometimes there are these trite little things and you're like, oh, my word, come on, guys. Try our Sundays. You can do better than that, you know, honestly. Or, you know, sun, S-O-N, screen prevents burning, that kind of thing. Um, the password to heaven is Jesus. Yeah, not, not the greatest, but <laughs> there is, I suppose, at the, at the heart there, there is, there's, a, there's a truth. In order for us to go into the throne room of grace, to advance to the Lord of glory, to be able to call him Father, our Father who art in heaven. You remember, that's how we were taught to pray. We need to be in a relation to him. And the only way that we can have been related to him and cease to be enemies and rebels, people in the kingdom of darkness, is if we have submitted ourselves already to the Son of glory, if we've come to Jesus Christ by faith, If we are his and we pray in the name of Christ, going to the throne, we are told the Father will hear us. If you are one of God's people, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, if your sins have been paid for and you are coming in the name of Christ, then you can think of it this way. We don't often, but we should because this is the image that we're given in Scripture. Our prayers ascend like incense, something that smells sweet. The prayers of God's people are perfumed by the graces of Christ. So as we come into the presence of God, we are not praying in our own power. We're not praying in our own name. We're praying in Christ's name. And if you aren't really speaking to your Father who is in heaven, if your prayers are... When, when I was an unbeliever, I had I, been sent to, by my parents to uh, a Roman Catholic school. They were hoping that the nuns could uh, somehow put the fear of God in me. They, they failed. Um, but uh, prayer there was something... You did it with beads. You muttered the same words over and over again. And often the people who were praying were people who did not know the Lord at all. Most often, that was the case. Let me give you an example of prayer offered up in unbelief without really knowing... Uh, the God whom you're praying to. 
And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, I want you to see this because I think a lot of people do this without considering how dangerous and how foolish it is. I'll start with verse 11. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Brothers, sisters, if we attempt to pray without knowing the God who we are speaking in the name of, it's an empty and an offensive prayer. It's powerless. The devils mocked this person even though they were using the name of Christ. But it was a Christ they didn't know. It was somebody they had no connection to, no faith in. And they were serving, without realizing it, the same kingdom, believe it or not. Not the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. But contrast that, if you will. Go back a little to Acts chapter 9. I want you to contrast that with the example of Paul. In Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to give you a hint. Look at what the Lord says. In verse 11, I'm going to start with verse 8 of chapter 9. Then Paul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now this is, Paul has been confronted on the road to Damascus. He's gone to persecute the Lord's people, and Jesus has appeared to him, blinded him. Paul, Paul, why are you, or actually at that time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. Paul had spent his entire life praying, but he had been wrong. He had not been praying through the Lord Jesus Christ, had not believed in him, had not been trusting in the Messiah. He had trusted in the pharisaical self-righteousness, their legalistic doctrines that lowered the requirements of the law and said, we can jump over them. He came in his own righteousness, and he had never come aright before. But now Paul has been shaken to the core. And Paul is finally praying in humility. He's finally doing, in essence, what Elijah had done, putting his, his head between his knees. No longer the self-righteous Pharisee, but rather someone who knows that if he is to be saved, it has to be through the very person that he once persecuted. Is it even possible? That must have been a question in his mind. Why would someone whom I had persecuted, whose people I had persecuted unto death, why would he save me? Why would he have anything to do with me? But the Lord is full of mercy. In verse 12, we read, And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias says, No, 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 this isn't the right guy. (laughs) Time out. But he is. And so what does the Lord say to Ananias? In verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and note the word he uses here. This is a man who he could not believe the Lord would choose. This is a man who had tormented them, who was coming to kill disciples in Damascus when the Lord met him. But what does he say? Brother Saul. If the Lord says, you are my brother, then you're my brother. And so he calls him Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Now, I know that in an assembly this size, and certainly if there are people who are watching online, there is someone here who has not yet done what Paul did, which is given up trying to save themselves, humbled themselves, and come in true faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is my advice to you then? It is to do what Paul did. It's to do what Elijah did. It is to pray, to humble yourself at this point in time, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to not think you have to be fit to do so, for you cannot make yourself fit to come to him, to not think that you have to be righteous to draw near to him, for he's the only one who can make you righteous in the first place. All you need to do is feel your need of him. If you do... That's because the Lord has put that in your heart. That work that he was doing in Paul, that can happen in your life as well. It happened in mine. I was amazed at how sinful I was, how vile a sinner I was. And I think for a moment, I wondered, how on earth can I be saved? And then I heard the gospel message that the Lord Jesus welcomes sinners Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He wasn't speaking hyperbolically. He knew his own heart. He knew how how wretched he had been. But he knew that the Lord welcomes a repentant sinner who comes to him for salvation. I pray that's you today. I pray you're coming to the Lord and admitting you need him. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I pray that you would do that work that only you can in hearts today. That you would cause us to stop thinking we can save ourselves. And I pray, O Lord, that we would come to you humbly, cry out to you for the salvation that we need so very badly. I pray also, Lord, that you would make us a praying people. Once we have, O Lord, been adopted into your family, once we can honestly say, Father, and mean it in our hearts, may it be that we never stop talking to you. May, Lord, the words gush forth from our souls. May it be that when we are are stricken, when we are uh, wondering and anxious, when we are feeling depressed, or when we're joyous, Lord, that we would immediately come to you and cry out to you, knowing that you hear us for the sake of your son, Jesus, and that you will give us what we need. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will no longer have to pray uh, as uh, people who are, are far off, but we will see you face to face and be able to address you directly and sing your praises. May that day come soon. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen.